Now we're back in our study through the book of Romans. And tonight we're going to look at one phrase, all have sinned, all have sinned. We are coming to one of the pivotal sections of the book of Romans. I'll explain that statement in just a few moments. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 contains some of the most critical verses to the understanding of the book of Romans that uh, you'll find in the entire book. And so we're going to study it in detail. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 12, 13, and 14. And I want you, if you will, please to join with me as we read these verses aloud together. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, in just a few moments after you're seated, our ushers are going to come, in fact, even now to receive our tithes and offerings as we give them unto them. And um, Laura McCain is going to be sharing with us. Laura is a student at OBU, and you'll want to be praying for her as she sings. And we're going to pray that this offering that we give unto God will truly have his blessing upon it and that he'll open our eyes to the study of God's Word this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you that you have given us this wonderful privilege of meeting. And Father, I thank you for bringing us back once again to this book of Romans. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that in this wonderful, wonderful book, you outline to us so clearly what the gospel is all about and how desperately we need the gospel and how it is by faith that we receive Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. And Father, there's no way that we could repay you for the wonderful gift of eternal life. The offerings which we give this evening are not an effort to repay you. We could not do that, Father. But they are simply a token of our love, an expression of our gratitude, an expression of the joy that's in our heart that comes from serving you, Lord God. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we continue to worship this evening. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. You know, I'm not a very good... Open your Bible, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Book of Romans, chapter 5. We have just come through an extended period of time when our study through the book of Romans has been temporarily halted. An exciting period of time for our church. The last time we were studying this book together, we were in our old building. The last time we studied the book together, not only had we not moved or marched, we hadn't even started our discovery drive. There's been a lot of things happened since uh, we concluded that first basic passage in the book of Romans. And now we're going to take time to look back in this book, which is such a significant book, in understanding what you receive when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, just by means of review, let me just take you back through the first four chapters of the book of Romans and part of the fifth chapter so that you'll remember what it is that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this wonderful, wonderful book. 
We might entitle this book a, a complete study of the gospel of the Lord, a complete study of the gospel of the Lord, because the Apostle Paul deals with what the gospel is all about. In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, he gives us the nature of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And in it is the righteousness of God revealed. That is, through the message of the gospel and the experience of salvation does the entire universe see that God can make things that are wrong right. He can set things right. Now, heaven would never know about that were it not for the fact that they got to witness people being saved on this earth. God never has to fix anything that's broken in heaven. And so it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. We see that God can take sin-cursed men and make them right with him. So the first section of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the nature of the gospel. The second major section begins with verse 19 of chapter 1 and continues all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20. And in that section, he speaks about our need for the gospel. In that section, if you remember, the apostle Paul deals with the absolute futility of human effort to save. He deals with the pagans and answers the question. you remember that? Are people in the farthest regions of the world who've never heard about Jesus Christ, are they held accountable for sin? Do we really need to go and share the gospel with them? Wouldn't it be better just to let them die in ignorance? Wouldn't God take them on to heaven? And there the Apostle Paul explains why it is that God, through this very created universe, reveals himself unto mankind and so that they are guilty before God. And then he deals with those who are the religionists of his day. He deals with those who say, well, look, I'm not like those folks out there who've never heard about God. I'm a very moral person. I spend a great deal of time worshiping. And he says, but you see, worship will not save a person. And then he moves over to, to a group of people that is very close to his heart. He said, and by the way, I want you to know that just practicing the law will not save a person. In fact, he says, the law is sort of a tutor. It teaches us the futility of living a perfect life. It is constantly there as the standard of, life, uh, of God against which we measure the crookedness of our own lives. And so chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle Paul describes the futility of man to save himself. So what is the answer? Well, the Apostle Paul answers it in chapter 4, uh, actually beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and all the way through chapter 4. He says, the answer is not found in human effort. The answer is not found in religion. The answer is found when you understand that salvation, eternal life, is a gift from God. It was purchased for us when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. He died for our sins. He paid the wages of sin, which is death. You can't work for it. You'll never deserve it. In your, you, you can work as hard as you want. You'll never earn it. But man must be saved by faith. And so that section... Chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 4, explains the great doctrine of justification by faith. By faith. It, it means to have accounted to you as if you had never sinned, having the record white clean, so that you can come before God and have fellowship with God. 
He explains that great doctrine in the balance of chapter 3. He illustrates it in chapter 4. And right on down through the uh, first part of chapter 5, he speaks about the blessings of being justified by faith, those things which you receive when you understand that justification is by faith. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago, and I'm praying that tonight God will just rivet your attention to his word. I mentioned a few moments ago that chapter 5, beginning with verse 12, right on through the end of this chapter, is a pivotal passage of Scripture in this book of Romans. Now, let me explain why I make that statement. It is the hinge upon which the book of Romans turns at this stage. Up until now, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with doctrine beginning with this passage. In fact, it's, he's going to make the turn right here. This is the hinge. Beginning with this passage and especially beginning in, in, in chapter 6 and right on through, the Apostle Paul is going to move from doctrine to the practical expression of the Christian life. There are three stages in the Christian life. The first is justification. The second is sanctification, and the third is glorification. Now, glorification is when you go to heaven in a glorified body. Justification is when you're saved. You trust in Jesus for your salvation. Sanctification is that process of life from the moment you are saved until God calls you home, whether it's when you die or Jesus comes, by which he makes you increasingly effective and increasingly conformed to the image of his Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, I believe there are probably some people here this evening who would say, I am struggling with sin in my life. I'm a Christian. I have no doubt, but what if I died? I would go to heaven. I believe I would spend my eternity in heaven. I do not question that. But there are some sins, or there is a specific sin in my life. And I cannot seem to overcome it. It seems that no matter how I uh, turn and make all kinds of solemn resolves and, and say, God, I'm grateful that I'm saved, now I want to overcome that sin, that I cannot overcome that specific sin. It may be a sin of thought. It may be a sin of word. It may be a sin of action. It is something that you perhaps have gone before God about on more than one occasion, and you've said, God, I give up. I don't know how to handle this. How can I overcome this sin? Now, beginning with this passage, the Apostle Paul, of course, he doesn't want us ever to move into some kind of uh, monastic type of Christianity. I mean, he wants us to be out and about and living the Christian life. And so the Apostle Paul, beginning with this chapter, moves from the expression of the doctrine of justification by faith over to the practical expression of the Christian life, which we might call sanctification. That is the process by which God continues to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. You've seen people wear that, those little signs they, or buttons. They bring uh, them back from the basic institute, I think. You know, be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Well, that's the truth. God's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He's still working on me. There's a little sign, a, a song, the Gaither sing. He's still working on me. Well, that's the truth. 
And the fact that you're going to heaven doesn't mean that God said, okay, I've written your name down here. I'll put you over in a little box and I'll not pay any attention to you until I come back and call you home to heaven or you die and get up to heaven. God says, I am actively involved in your life. I'm training you. And so that is the section of Romans that we are entering into. Now, there's a second reason this chapter is so pivotal. The whole procedure by which a believer in Jesus overcomes besetting sin. Are you interested in doing that? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you died, you'd have eternal life? Now, some here perhaps would have to say, I don't even have that confidence. But for those of you who could say, I know that if I died, I'd spend eternal life. The whole procedure by which you overcome sin on a day-by-day basis rests upon your understanding of what it means, now listen, to be identified with Christ. To be identified with Christ. What is it that Jesus did on the cross that affects you today? How is it that his dying 2,000 years ago has anything to do with what I, what I am today, with whether I can overcome sin today? And so this little passage that we're going to discover the balance, or to study, the balance of chapter 5, deals with our identification with Jesus. How it is that what he did on the cross has anything to do with me 2,000 years later and my ability to overcome sin. In order to explain your identity with Jesus, the Apostle Paul, first of all, must explain our identity with Adam. Because the Bible makes it clear that there's some things that happen in our lives because Adam sinned. They wouldn't be happening in our lives if Adam hadn't sinned. You wouldn't have a sin nature. I wouldn't have a sin nature if Adam had not sinned. And so we in some way are identified with Adam, and then Paul's going to show us how in the same way we can be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is such a difficult passage of Scripture. I know that in these next few moments, Satan will do anything to wrestle your attention away. So I'm going to take it a little bit at a time, and I'm praying that God tonight will show some of you just a glimpse of how you can move in victory over sin. Now, in chapter uh, 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says something that he has um, already stated on several occasions before. All have sinned. Now, let's look at three things this evening. First of all, let's look at the reason all have sinned. Second, at the reality that all have sinned. And third, at the result of of the fact that all have sinned. All right, first of all, the reason that all have sinned. Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that I have a sin nature? Why is it the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? By the way, I'll confess to you, I used to believe it was sort of like this. Let's say this pen is me and and, uh, this hand is heaven. I used to think, you know, do a few good things, get toward heaven, a few bad things toward hell, a few more good things toward heaven, a few good things closer to heaven, a few bad things toward hell, a few more bad things even closer to hell, a few more good things, a few more good things closer to heaven, a few bad things. And that's sort of how I lived. Good things, bad things, good things, bad things. Now, if I died way out here, God would say, too bad, go to hell. Up here, I'd say, oh, pretty good, come to heaven. That's, that's about the way I thought it was. But I'm holding this pen about an eighth of an inch from my hand, and I am missing my hand here just as certainly as I'm missing it here. You see, the Bible says every one of us has sinned, and the issue with God is not the degree of our sin. Any more than, you know, you can miss a plane by three seconds. You might as well not have gotten up out of bed and gone to the airport. If you miss it, you've missed it. 
And that's the way it is with sin. We say, well, I'm not as bad a sinner. That's irrelevant to God. Because God is dealing more than with your sins. Uh, that is the manifestation of your sin. He is dealing with sin, which is your sin nature. You say, where did this come from? Why is it that in me there is a rebelliousness to God? There, were, there was a whole period of time in the history of our nation when people believed that if you just put man in a good enough environment that he would be good, and they discovered that a bum in the slums is a bum in the best part of town unless his heart's changed. And, you know, the, the other thing that people thought was this. Well, they said, if you, could, if you could just peel back the veneer, you know, and take off all the effect of a man's society and get down to just man basically, you discover man is basically good. And the studies have proven that the, the less restraint you put on an individual, he doesn't get better, he gets worse. There is within us a rebellious nature. What is the reason? That's the first thing the Apostle Paul talks about. What is the reason that all have sinned? All right, listen to what he says here. This is the reason all have sinned. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Why are we sinners? We are sinners because we are all descendants of one man. That man is Adam. Now, you say, but what does that have to do with my, you know, I mean, I, the fact that physically I inherit some characteristics that can be traced all the way back to the first man, what does that have to do with my sin? All right, now, we don't have any question but that we are physical descendants of an individual. You know, I mean, that just makes logical sense. You know how people are born, and you can just trace it all the way back. Now, that doesn't create a big problem for people. The truth of the matter is, we don't have much trouble in acknowledging our soulish descendants, descendancy from other people. I see how my grandfather built certain qualities into my father's life who built them into my life, and I'll pass those qualities to some extent onto my children and so forth. And so we, we understand how intellectually and emotionally and volitionally, when you talk about a value system, that it seems that a value system can be, can be passed along from one generation to the other, although that seems a little bit less real than the physical to us. But we have a real struggle, don't we, thinking that something can be spiritually passed on from one generation to the other. And yet the Bible is very clear in saying that when Adam sinned, it affected the whole human race, not only physically, not only soulishly, but spiritually. And just as we can trace our physical uh, genealogy back to Adam, so can you and I trace our spiritual genealogy back to Adam. And that is why sometimes you will hear Adam referred to as the federal head of the race. We speak about the federal government, that is, the government which represents us all. Adam is spoken of sometimes as the federal head or the federal representative of all because his spiritual genealogy is passed on to us as well as his physical. And you say, now, I don't understand that. And the reason you're saying that is because you can't boil spiritual down into a test tube and analyze it, can't you? Can you? You can't see it. And you say, I can't believe it's real unless I can see it. Now, I can see my body, and I can hear somebody speaking about their value system, so I can understand how that could be passed on, but because I can't see spirit, I have a hard time believing that it's passed on, that a spiritual genealogy is passed on like that. You're asking the same question that Nicodemus asked of Jesus. When Jesus said, a man must be born of the flesh and of the spirit, and Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, I know your struggle. 
but let me ask you, do you believe in wind? He said, yes, sir. Have you ever seen the wind? No, sir. Have you, do you know where it's come from, where it's going? No, sir. How do you know there's wind? Well, I see the evidence of it. I hear the sound of it. I see the rustling trees. Right. You see wind by the evidence. How do we know there is such a thing as spirit? Because we see the evidence of sin. And he's going to go ahead and point out that there is a universal evidence, and it is death. It is death. And uh, there's a note. I, some of you may have a Schofield Bible. I don't believe that Schofield's notes are, are inerrant or anything of, of that nature. But there is a little statement, I believe, in the Schofield Bible, which you perhaps would want to look at, and it says, for a universal result, there must be a universal cause. And since death is universal, there must be a universal cause. And so you and I are sinners by nature because sin entered the race through Adam. By the way, why is Adam chosen? You say Eve was the first one that sinned because Adam is the father of the human race. And by the way, if you'll check back in the book of Genesis, you will discover that Adam was created and then Eve fashioned out of a portion of Adam's body, indicating that Adam would not be complete without his companion, nor she fulfilled without him. God meant them to be a part of each other. But Adam is the father of the human race. Now, there's one other thing, by the way, and, and you uh, young people, high school and college students would be interested in this. This scripture right here alone in the Bible, alone, this scripture, is enough to destroy the theory of evolution because it says that one man is the father of us all. It says there weren't uh, all over this orb, which we call the earth, different places, there weren't various people evolving at the same time ultimately matching up and becoming the human race. It says sin entered the race by one man. By the way, I won't deal with this here, but I'll deal with it later, the Lord willing. There are many people who say, I, I, I'm not an atheist, but I believe in theistic evolution. God controlled evolution. You may not understand this right now. I believe you will later when I talk about it, but those two are contradictory terms because the evolutionist, you see, must admit to chaos, some degree of chaos. While to believe, you're saying God arranged, God ordered evolution, God ordered chance. How do, how do you have God ordered chance? If it's chance or it's God ordered, you see. And so, the, in fact, if you want to know the truth, and I, I wish I, if I can produce the documents for you if you'd like to see them, but many of the most prominent evolutionists of this generation will admit to you that they begin with a basic lifestyle and then begin searching for a philosophy which would endorse their lifestyle. And they couldn't believe in God. They had to believe in meaninglessness so that they could, they could live a meaningless life. And by the way, if you don't believe that that's filtering in your society, just listen to the music and look at the art because you more you emphasize meaninglessness and chaos, the more the music sounds like it and the art looks like it, you see. Just a reflection of what's on the inside of us. And so this one verse alone would destroy the theory, and I remind you, it is a theory of evolution. Now, why is it? We say all of sin. What is the reason? Now, now listen, folks. Here, Paul is not dealing with sins. He would call sins just the manifestation of sin, which is our sinful nature. He's dealing with sin. How is it that we are all sinners? He says sin entered through Adam, who is the federal head of this race. That is, it has been passed on from generation to generation. And the fact that we can agree to that physically, we can sort of understand it emotionally or soulishly, but we're totally baffled by it spiritually does not make it untrue. 
because the Scripture says it right here. We would have argued with other things the Scripture would have said, but the more we become enlightened to the Scripture, the more we realize that it's true. And it's true not because we understand that it's true, because it's God's Word. Now, the Apostle Paul knows what you're thinking, or God does, and so he uses Paul to address the issue. Here's what he says. I know that you're arguing with the reason. And so he says, let's just look at the reality. And you can argue all you want to about why it is that all have sinned, but he says, look at the reality. All have sinned. Now, um, anybody here argue with that? Anybody here disagree with that? I've been in many countries of this world. I've talked to many people about the Lord Jesus Christ and their need of Jesus, and yet I have never met a person who said that he had never sinned. Never. There is just this inner awareness of sin. Did you know that sometimes you can find whole societies of people who don't understand a great deal about God but are keenly conscious of their sin? I have a, a very good friend who is a missionary in Indonesia, and he was there during that, that bloody coup when the communists were routed out of Indonesia and there were, there were several million people killed. I mean, it was just an unbelievable thing. They first started talking in terms of a half million people and then a million people killed. Now they estimate that perhaps several million people were killed. And the people just went mad. They would search through the houses and find out if anybody had any relationship at all to the communists. If they did, they would take them down to the rivers and they would literally saw them in two and throw their bodies in the river. And there were times, it is said, when you could walk across the river on dead bodies. Other times when the river was literally red with the blood of dead human beings. Now here's what my friend, the missionary said, took place within a week or so after that the people who had gone out and done all of that killing, you know, in the name of, of everything that was right, they thought, those people began to feel increasingly guilty. There was nobody to try them. In fact, the whole populace thought they had done the right thing. But in spite of the fact that they initially thought they had done the right thing, and in spite of the fact that their friends and neighbors encouraged them to do what they do, they could not live with it. And my friend said, now this is very interesting, my friend said that they went down to that same river which was so filled with the dead bodies of people that had lost their lives in this coup, and they would take animals like a chicken, for instance, and they would tear the head off of it, and then they would just squeeze the blood all over their bodies. And you would ask them, why are you doing that? And they would say, I feel so bad, I did so wrong. I've never met anybody who said, I don't believe I've ever done anything wrong, I don't believe I've ever sinned. Even people who are professing atheists. Now, isn't that interesting? Even people who say, I don't believe in God will say, I admit I've sinned. And you want to say, well, how? Wait a minute. If you don't believe in God, against whom have you sinned? And so you may argue with the reason. You may say, well, I don't understand that, how, how something spiritual can be passed from generation to generation. But you cannot argue with the reality that all have sinned. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul says here in the Scripture. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Every key that you have in your pocket or purse right now is a testimony that all have sinned. Every, every army ever marshaled, every soldier who ever marched is a testimony 
that man has sinned. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being a soldier in an army. It's just a testimony that we live in a world of wrong that men have sinned. Every policeman in uniform is a testimony that all have sinned. You see, there's just evidences that man can be trusted not to do right. Man can be trusted to do wrong. Man is sinful. Look at the reality of it. And then the Apostle Paul says, look at the results of it. That's the final thing I want you to, to see. He says, here is the reason. We are sinners by nature because the father of the human race has passed on to us not only his physical and soulish genealogy, but his spiritual genealogy. He represents us. Now, now, listen carefully. I need to make this parenthetical statement. It is, this, it is essential for you to understand how Adam represents us all in this issue of sin if you're going to understand how Jesus represents us all in the issue of salvation. You see, if sin entered by many men, then it would take many messiahs dying to save us. But it's because sin entered by one man, that is the first Adam, that it only takes one man, that is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to save us, you see. A lot of people would never understand that. But you've got to understand how it is that we identify with Adam so that you can understand how we identify with Christ. So don't just let that slide over and say, well, I went to church and I learned something interesting tonight. It is not only interesting, it is crucial to your understanding of how to overcome sin on a day-by-day -day basis. So there is the reason for sin. It entered through Adam, the reality of sin. We don't argue with the fact that it's real. And finally, the results of sin. What is the result of sin? Death. Now, two kinds of death are the result of sin, all right? What is the first kind? The first kind is spiritual death. Spiritual death. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Here, Adam and Eve. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of the fruit of any of the trees with one exception. That's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Satan tempted first Eve, then Adam partook of that fruit. What happened to them? They died. Now, they didn't die immediately in the physical sense. They kept living and breathing walking and talking. They didn't die in the soulish sense. They kept thinking. They kept having emotions, but they died spiritually. They were cut off from God. God came looking for them in the Garden of Eden. They were hiding from God in nakedness and shame in the Garden of Eden. They were cut off from God. That is spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, being cut off from God. The second result of that is physical death. Physical death. There was a time when I said, no, I believe that physical death was created right into this universal system and people have died anyway. That seems to be the natural process. But the more I have studied this, the more I realize that the physical death which occurred is a result of the fact that when we died spiritually, when man died spiritually, he fell out of correspondence with the universe. The universe and man became antagonists so that ultimately man's physical life is taken. Now, God had to dismiss Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden for that to occur. Why is that so? All right, turn with me over into the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And look with me at two interesting verses. Now, there's a great deal of discussion about these verses, and 
Let's just look and see what they say. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. This is after sin. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, because Adam and Eve had experienced evil now for the first time. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. And so God dismissed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so they could not take of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. Man would live forever in a sinful state had he partaken of the tree of life there in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And so the first result of sin is spiritual death, that is being cut off from this, from God and therefore becoming an antagonist in this universe. The second result of that is physical death because when man falls out of correspondence with God, he falls out of correspondence with God's creation and then the law of death begins to work on him until ultimately his life is gone. I want to conclude with this one thought. I'm glad Paul doesn't stop right here. I, I can't imagine a more dismal scene. Here he's just blurted it out once again. All have sinned. What's the reason for that? Why, it's an event over which you nor I had no control way back at the beginning of mankind. Adam, the father of the human race, chose to sin, and in some way, just as he passed his physical and soulless genealogy on to us, he also passed his spiritual genealogy on to us. We have sin as a nature. At our core, we are rebellious. If you don't agree with that, just admit it on the basis of the evidence, the reality. We all are sinners. And what is the result? The result is death, falling out of correspondence with God and ultimately losing our physical life. I'm so glad that, Adam, that Paul didn't end right there with the first Adam. The balance of this passage speaks about the second Adam, that is Jesus Christ. For just as in the first Adam all sin, so in the second Adam, Jesus can all be made alive. For it is when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary that he purchased for us eternal life. He paid the wages of sin, which is death. He, as the one man who could do it, the man who had never sinned, died on the cross and paid the wages of sin, which is death. Now, I want to ask you one question just as we come to invitation time. Can you, beyond any shadow of a doubt, say this tonight? I know the second Adam, that is Jesus, better than I know the first Adam. I'm in love with the, with the fact that Jesus died, and I'm in love with Jesus because he died for me on the cross of Calvary. I accept the fact that his death 2,000 years ago has an impact on my life now. And I, by faith, have received a living Savior as my Lord and my Master. Or would you have to say, no, I'm thoroughly acquainted with the first Adam. I know about the sin nature, and I know about the sins, and I know about the law of death working in me. I'm not in harmony with God, and I'm not in harmony with His universe. I know the first Adam better than I know the second. Well, tonight's invitation would be for you then to say, look, I want to come and by faith receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how I thank you for giving us this evening this opportunity to study your word, to open it, and to see how it is that something 
which happened thousands of years ago, could have an impact on our lives. Lord, it's a great mystery, but we cannot deny the reality of it. We know that all have sinned. And Lord, if we can't figure out about everybody else, at least we know this, I have sinned. And each of us here tonight could say that about himself or herself, I have sinned. And Father, while we know that the wages of sin is death, we know that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And my prayer is that tonight there would be those who would come to say yes to Jesus and put their trust in Him as Savior and as Lord of their lives. And I pray this in Jesus' precious and wonderful and saving name tonight. Now, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one looking around or even moving around unless you're coming to the altar. This is not a time to leave or to slip out or to distract anybody around you. We've come to a crucial point. This is invitation time. Your personal invitation to say yes to that which God has put on your heart. Some of you already know what it is that God has just spoken to you by His Spirit tonight or in days before, and you simply want to come and make that decision tonight. I want to encourage you, whoever you are, wherever you're seated, even as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just to stand up wherever you are, make your way to the nearest aisle, make your way forward. There you'll find a counselor who'll talk with you and pray with you. And before you leave tonight, you can know beyond any shadow of doubt that things are set right between you and God, that your burden is lifted, that you have abundant life and eternal life. And as folks come even now, would you, you make that same decision? If you know what it is, even while I'm speaking, if you know what it is that God's spoken to your heart, God bless you, you just come on right now and say yes to Jesus. Tonight, I'm saying yes to Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I claim Him by faith tonight. It could be that you need to say tonight, we need to join this church. You may not have a church home. It could be that you're attending a church where you're not serving the Lord. And God's just put it on your heart and said, you know, this is where you belong. This is really where you need to plant your life as a family, as a single person, as an individual, young man, young lady. This is where you ought to plant your life. Well, I would encourage you to come and make that decision. It could be that you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, but since that day that you made that decision, you've never followed Him and His command to be baptized as an open and public expression of your faith in Christ. And you want to come and make that decision this evening. Well, I would encourage you to come this evening. You say, is that really important? Well, is Jesus being your Lord important? Throughout the Bible, he's certainly called Lord more than he's called anything else, even Savior. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say unto you? And one of the things Jesus says is that believers are to be baptized, that is, immersed, that is to show they've died to an old way of life and risen to walk in newness of life. You may have done that before you were saved. You may have done it as a little child. Somebody may have done it to you. You may not have understood anything about it. But you've come to know Jesus and you want to follow his command to be baptized. I want to encourage you to come and make that decision this evening. Just say to one of these counselors, look, I'm a Christian. I want to be scripturally baptized. I want to be scripturally baptized. Would you make that decision tonight? Perhaps you're here and you've got a burden on your heart. You want to come and kneel at the prayer rail here at the altar and just lift that burden before God and say, dear God, you know what's on my heart and I want to commit it to you. I want to surrender it to you tonight. I want to say yes to you. And as others are coming, would you just join them right now? This is your personal invitation to say yes to Jesus. Perhaps you're here and you would say, quite honestly, I, I don't have this certainty that if I died, I'd go to heaven. I don't have it. I hope so. I, I want to. But I just don't have that inner witness of the Spirit of God saying to me that I'm His child. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John said, as many as received him, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Paul said that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is your invitation to make that decision tonight, to say, I want to receive by faith that gift. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. Will you make that decision this evening? Don't go away knowing the second, first Adam better than you know the second Adam. That is the Lord Jesus. Come saying yes to Jesus tonight. Jesus is tenderly calling you home. Brother Gary is going to lead us as we sing that. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's just stand together. Some have already come. Why not just slip to the aisle, make your way to the altar right now as we sing together. Jesus is tenderly Amen. calling tonight, you I'm home. Tonight I'm saying yes to Jesus. Calling today.